Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And because that's true, uh, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. As you're finding Hebrews chapter 1, as has been mentioned, we're starting a series through the New New Testament letter of Hebrews that we uh, are creatively entitling Hebrews. As you're finding that, um, let me mention just what a joy it is to listen to Logan's message last week. My son Jacob and I were in Uganda with Raphael. This has been mentioned, obviously, a few times already. And it was just so, I'm just so thankful. Like, my, my heart is bursting with just joy to be in the house of the Lord today with you. Um, it was wonderful to hear Logan's message. It was wonderful to be with the brothers and sisters, our sister church in Busega, right outside of Kampala, Uganda, last week, to see the new building that, in large part, we have funded as a church to build. It is beautiful. It's the nicest building in the whole suburb. To see it filled with people praising God under such wonderful Christian pastoral leadership, Pastor Raphael, and then the day after that to see about 100 pastors gathered to learn. It's just glorious. And then to have Tommy and Allison here with us and their beautiful children, and to know that what Tommy is doing with his ministry in South Africa is helping to equip these pastors in Africa who just have wonderful instincts pastorally but are in many ways under-resourced theologically. And sadly, because of the, uh, the anemic nature of much of the American church, what they get over the internet is just garbage. And so they need not just a visit every now and again from us, but they need people there in their own continent like Tommy and Imprint that can train and help Give them healthy, good resources. And I'm just so thankful for that. What a privilege it is to serve the Lord. What a privilege it is. And then to be able to come and and start this series through Hebrews, I am just grateful. So here's what I want to do. I want to read uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Then we're going to do a little bit of background, and then we're going to work our way through these four verses. And I am thrilled to be able to begin this letter with you that we will be in for for some time. Uh, We might take some breaks over the months just to kind of mix it up a little bit, but we begin this series through Hebrews. So let me read verses 1 through 4, and then uh, let me pray. The author of Hebrews writes this, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he 
upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let me pray. Lord, as we begin this journey through this glorious, beautiful, Christ-saturated letter, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would help me. I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase, that you would do wonderful things through this journey through Hebrews, that Christ would become sweeter, that he would become more glorious, that our sin would become more bitter, that our future hope would become clearer, and that the gospel would become richer to all of us. I pray for my friends in this room that don't know you, that you would give them a heart to believe, whether now or over the weeks and months. I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room that we would treasure Christ more, that we would love you more deeply. That's what we need. We need to, we need, we need to love you more. We need to see the beauty of Jesus more. It's what we need. It's what, we, it's what I need. So help us, Lord, help us, please. Help us to see these things through your word, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, a little intro and a little background. We won't do this every, we don't do this often, but I think it's, it warrants as we start this new letter, which is a, a well-known and uh, one of the, the kind of mountain peaks of the New Testament, this letter of Hebrews. A couple things I want to do before we get into this text. I want us to think just briefly about the author and the audience and the purpose of this letter. Who is the author of Hebrews? Now, this is, uh, if you've spent any time sort of studying the Bible or thought of, or just maybe read Hebrews before, something that you're probably aware of is that Hebrews is the one book of the Bible, in particular in the New Testament, that we are not certain who the author is. It's really the only one that doesn't, in the writing, tell us who it is or that we're very sure of who it is. Now, there are lots of options, and this has long debated. This Through the centuries of the Christian church, this is one of those issues that is a kind of hot-button issue that people have debated for a long time. Is it the Apostle Paul? Is it Barnabas? Is it... Luke, the gospel writer who also wrote Acts. Some people think it's Apollos. There are many other uh, options. I will say this, that it's probably not the Apostle Paul. It could have been, but it's probably not. Tyler and I were joking earlier this morning. Tyler and I were at a meeting a a year or so ago when this uh, really good preacher got up at this big meeting, and he was preaching from Hebrews, and he said, sort of without a doubt, I'm just going to lay it to rest. The guys, the author of Hebrews is Paul. That's what he said. And everybody kind of laughed, and he was saying it sort of. He wasn't joking. He was like he was he was like he was giving us the knowledge. And um, but I I actually think he's wrong. And I think he's wrong because a few reasons. One, Paul wrote thirteen letters in the New Testament. All of the other ones that we know he wrote, there's thirteen of them. He identifies himself. He says, "This is this is from my hand. I'm Paul." That's the first reason. Secondly, the style of the Greek in Hebrews. The original language is much different from the other letters of Paul, which is unusual. And thirdly, and I think this is the most, the most conclusive reason why it's probably not Paul, is in chapter 2, verse 3, 
the writer of Hebrews makes this point. He says, how should we ex- neglect such a great salvation? How should we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And that's much of the theme of Hebrews is warning. But he says this. He says, it, meaning this salvation, the gospel, was declared at first by the Lord, and meaning from the words of Jesus himself, and it was attested to us by those who heard, and that's speaking of the apostles, the, the, the men that were with Jesus in his earthly ministry. Now, the reason why I think Hebrews chapter 2, that verse, makes Paul's authorship of Hebrews much less likely is because if you remember the story of Paul's conversion in Acts, in Acts chapter 8 and 9, Paul was not one of the original 12 apostles who was with Jesus during his earthly ministry, but came to faith in Christ after Jesus' resurrection, when Jesus makes a return visit and actually appears to Paul on the road to Damascus, knocks him off the horse, and commissions Paul, that's the moment of Paul's salvation and his commissioning, to be an apostle of Christ to the Gentiles. And Paul's point, Paul makes a big deal in all of his letters validating and vindicating his apostolic authority because he too, and this is what it meant to be an apostle, is to directly hear from Jesus and be an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul is, goes through great pains in all of his letters to say that my authority is not handed down from me second generation, but I have the same authority of the apostles who walked with Jesus because Jesus, I am an eyewitness of Jesus myself, even though it was much later on than the original apostles. So the fact that the writer of Hebrews would say that I received this gospel secondhand by those that heard, I think rules Paul out. We could be wrong. And I want to say this caveat, because a lot of times when preachers get going, you know, and I'll I'll maybe be referring to something in Hebrews, and I might accidentally let it slip, as Paul said, just forgive me, give me the grace. When I say, as Paul said, that's just because I'm used to saying that, not because I think that Paul actually wrote Hebrews. Okay, is that a deal? All right, good, good. Here's what Origen, one of the church fathers in the early 200s said. He said, and I think this is good, he said, only God knows who wrote Hebrews. Now, here's the point, though. Here's the question that I want us to think about on the author before. I don't want to spend too much time on this. Should Hebrews, then, be in the Bible? Because the reason we know that the 27 letters of the New Testament should be in the Bible is because they have all of them, 26 of the 27 anyway, have come through the writing of one of the apostles or an associate of one of the apostles. And this was the test of the church in the first century to know what should complete the New Testament or complete the scriptures, complete the canon was whether or not the letters that we now have as our New Testament came through the hand of one of the original apostles. So every one of the 27 letters in uh, in the New Testament, except for Hebrews, has been written by an apostle or by one of his ministry associates. And that was the primary test of whether or not a New Testament letter should be included in what we now know of as the Bible, with the exception of Hebrews. So what's the special case for Hebrews? Well, the church very early on began to include this in what they considered to be holy scriptures because, and this is, I think, what's going on in the first century, is because the early church had a sense of who wrote it or whose authority was attached to it, I think probably Paul or Luke, 
and because of the majesty and the obvious evident glory of the content of Hebrews. I think that's why Hebrews is in the Bible, and that's why we can trust that Hebrews is in the Bible. But here's, I think, the ultimate purpose, and this is just my personal speculation. Why would God have us not be sure who the author of Hebrews is? I mean, God can do whatever he wants. He has purposes in everything. We, he is sovereign over everything. There's not a molecule in the furthest edge of the universe that doesn't isn't fulfilling its intended purpose by God. So it's not like God, our triune God is up in the heavens saying, man, if this person would have only copied that thing better, then all of the church through the centuries would know who the author of Hebrews is. Gosh, what do I do now? No, this is intended by God. And I think it's intended by God to actually reinforce the fact that the scriptures were not primarily written by men, but by the hidden hand of a sovereign God, a spirit who superintended, who used men in their situations, in their personalities, in their context, to actually be the author of Scripture. So it's like God is holding out this one glorious, rich, mountaintop of a, of a letter, Hebrews, to be a kind of reminder that although we can have great confidence of who wrote Matthew and who wrote Acts and who wrote Romans, and this should give us confidence in the validity of the text and the authenticity of the text, that what we have in Romans and the rest of the Bible and Exodus and all these things is exactly what was written down, translated for us into our language. It is a kind of reminder that actually the true and great author of all of Scripture is God. And I think that's why this is just my personal speculation. I think that's why the author of Hebrews is anonymous. Secondly, the audience. Who's the audience of Hebrews? Well, uh, it doesn't actually say the letter to Hebrews. This is a, the title Hebrews was actually given to it by the early church. And it's written to primarily Hebrew or Jewish early Christians. Primarily ethnic Jews who were converts to Christ in the first century. They were very likely Jewish Christians who lived in Rome. Again, there's no indication of where these people live. Uh, there, there's no geographic or, 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 or group designation, but the early church started to call this the letter to the Hebrews, and at the end of Hebrews, there is this, there's this phrase in the last chapter where the writer of Hebrews says, those who live in Italy send their greetings to you. And what that probably, are those who are from Italy send their greetings to you. And that probably means those who, those displaced Romans, those displaced people who lived, Christians from Rome, are sending their, their greetings back to their home city, to their home church. And so the speculation is that it's probably Jewish Christians who live in Rome. But it's not so much important who they are and where they are, but, but what their situation was and what's the purpose, what's the audience. And they were likely Jewish Christians. And this is borne out through the letter. and We're going to return to this time and time again. It was Jewish Christians who were beginning to face two things. One, persecution in the Roman government, in the Roman Empire, under the hands of an increasingly hostile political government Roman Empire situation. And so they are starting to face persecution. It was valid and okay to be a Jew. That, uh, to be a Jew in the Roman Empire was kind of a recognized religion. 
And now these early converts to Christianity from Judaism are starting to face persecution. And there was this great temptation to go back to Judaism. And one of the main burdens of the author of Hebrews, I think very likely this Jew writing to fellow Christian Jews, is don't go back, don't go back in redemptive history, don't go back to the Old Covenant, don't go back to Moses, don't go back to the sacrifices, don't go back to the Old Testament priesthood, don't go back to the shadow, keep going forward to the thing that the shadow points to, which is Christ. That's the purpose, that's the audience of Hebrews, that's their situation, and the purpose primarily of Hebrews is to encourage these people who were tempted to sort of give up on their public profession of Christ because of what they were enduring politically and culturally. And then, I think this is the second group that is addressed over and over again, is not those people that were maybe timid Christians who were fearing political or cultural or social reprisal for being Christians, but those that were just sort of lethargic and spiritually lazy and for whatever reason were just starting to drift away from the Lord. They were the type of people that started out fast they were signing up, they were ready to go, and over the course of time, their early primary fire and interest in Christ started to dwindle, and it had become just a little ember, and the point of Hebrews is wanting to fan into flame spiritually apathetic Christians. So does Hebrews, does it have any applicability to us today? Christians who live in an increasingly hostile cultural environment, and Christians who are prone to spiritual lethargy and decline. Oh, how we need Hebrews. So what's the purpose of Hebrews? It's written as a word of exhortation. It's actually not an epistle or a letter. That word epistle means letter. It's actually a sermon. It's a rather long sermon. It's 13 chapters, although at the end of, I think it's in Hebrews chapter 13, the last chapter, Whoever writes it says, I've just given you some brief words. And so it's interesting that this, whoever preached this sermon uh, thought that this, I don't know, you know, hour and a half long sermon was kind of brief, but whatever. It was meant to be read to the people as a kind of word of exhortation, a read sermon. And in Hebrews is some of the highest and deepest doctrine of Christ, specifically about who Christ is, who the Son is. In fact, that's the primary point of Hebrews is who is the Son and what has He done? It is some of the highest and deepest doctrine in all of the Bible, which has caused Hebrews to be one of, along with, say, Romans, one of the most beloved letters in all of the Bible for Christians through the centuries. But here's my burden before we start to get into this text. We need to avoid the temptation to let the glorious doctrine, which we're going to get into in Hebrews, we're going to spend a lot of time, and, and sometimes we're going to get maybe, we're going to be tempted to kind of miss the, the, the forest from the trees because there's a lot of like deep stuff about Old Testament sacrifices and priests and Hebrews 6, 7, 8, and 9. It gets really, it gets really thorny in there, and it might, we might, we're going to have to really remember what we're talking about. There's some of this deep theology. But here's my burden. This is not, Hebrews doesn't exist as theology merely for theology's sake so that we can know more theology and sort of puff ourselves up with pride because we know more about Christ. 
but it's theology that's meant to take us somewhere. It's, and here's the burden of Hebrews. He's wanting to give us this deep, profound, but understandable explanation of who Christ is for the sake of helping the people press on and endure in Christ. Theology that exists merely for theology's sake and not for the glory of God and the good of his people and the perseverance of his people is no good at all. And so here's the point of Hebrews. It's not merely to present to us the supremacy of the Son, although I think that's the main theology of Hebrews, the supremacy of Christ over all of the things in the Old Covenant but it's meant to present the supremacy of the Son so that the people of God would hold fast to Him and draw near to Him and have everything that they need in Christ. So that's the purpose of Hebrews. All right, let's get into the text quickly. Oh, gosh, my goodness, it's 1130. All right, let's go. I want to just unwrap here, unfold three introductory truths that I think really serve as a foundation for all of Hebrews. The first is this, and I think this is the point of the first couple of verses. The first truth is this, is that God has spoken finally and fully through his son. God has spoken finally and fully through his son. Look at verses one and two again. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So that is a direct reference to the fact that God spoke to these Old Testament prophets. And what we have as our Old Testament is God in many times and in many ways speaking to his people through the prophets. But the writer is wanting to draw a contrast. And in verse 2 he says, but in these last days, and notice that, this is just a minor note. I don't want to get into this. I don't have time, but we're, we've been living in the last days since the resurrection of Jesus. That's the way the New Testament presents the last days. We are living in the eschaton, the end of the age, the last days since Jesus has ascended. So don't think about some future thing necessarily as the last days. But we, in these last days, He, meaning God the Father, has spoken to us by His Son. So He's wanting to contrast the old with the new, the old revelation, the old covenant, with the new revelation, the new covenant in his son Christ. So here's the point, is that Jesus, the son, is the final and the full and the sufficient word of God. Now when he's talking about he's spoken through his son, he's, he's not merely talking about just the words that Jesus spoke during his earthly ministry. You know, sometimes people will say, well, I'm a, I'm a red-letter Christian or whatever. You know, don't, don't get caught up into that. That's, 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 just, that's just silliness. The Bible is all of God's word, and, and, and it all carries his authority. And so when, when he's talking about speaking through his son, he's not talking about the words of Christ that we have recorded in the gospel. He's talking about the new covenant, all of the scriptures. That's why John 1 when we, when we went through John a few years ago, talked about, I guess that was just recently, but it was a few years ago when we started it, where John 1 says that, that Christ is the Word of God in flesh, the Word made flesh. So he's speaking through the incarnation, the life, the ministry of Jesus, 
and the message of Jesus, which is what the apostles wrote down, which we now have as our New Testament. So he's spoken to us. It's the final, full, and sufficient word. And it's sufficient because we don't need anything else. We should not be looking up into heaven, waiting for God to give us another word because we have it, and it's Christ. The writer of Hebrews is wanting to show us that the word the word about Christ, the word of Christ, the new covenant, the revelation of Christ in the word, the New Testament, is sufficient. That's why Peter says, I think in 2 Peter chapter 1, that we have everything we need for life and godliness. So what does this mean? Well, it doesn't mean when we talk about the sufficiency of Christ, the sufficiency of the word, the sufficiency of the scriptures, the sufficiency of the New Testament, we don't mean that you can't get truths from other sources. You know, if you're if you're getting surgery, I think it's wonderful. It would be great if your doctor was a believer. But I think in that moment, you would prefer that they know how to actually like do heart surgery than maybe the theology of Galatians. Can I get an amen, right? And if you go to a mechanic, it would be wonderful to have a, a Christian mechanic. But in that moment, you kind of want him to know how to change out your transmission. And you can't learn much about transmissions or heart surgery in the Bible. But those are true things that are subordinate truths. So that's not what we're talking about. We're not saying that it's all of truth, but it's sufficient truth. In terms of where our hope lies, in terms of where our trust is, it's the source, the word, the final revelation of God in his son Christ and his life and ministry, which we know of as the scriptures in the New Testament. It is the source of all wisdom. It orients us. It gives us Everything we need and every other truth is subordinate to it. It's, it's not a riddle or a clue book. It's the north star that guides us. It's the water that satisfies. It's the meat that nourishes. It's the bread from heaven that we live by. It's the rod that corrects. It gives us everything we need to know to be reconciled to God and live a life of obedience and wisdom to him until he takes us all the way home. That's what he's saying here at the beginning because he's going to contrast because the point is all throughout the letter is you have these early first century, first, century, first century Christians who are thinking about going back in redemptive history and relying on previous words and the writer of Hebrews is saying, no, press into Christ. God has spoken through him. Listen to him. So that's point, truth number one. God has spoken finally and fully through his son. Point number two or truth number two is that and here I think this is the really the primary point of the whole letter is that the Son, God the Son, is superior. He's better. He's supreme because of who He is and what He has done. And in the remaining verses of this introduction, the, the truths that are unfolded are some of the most essential and glorious in all of the Bible, and they become the theme of the rest of the letter. It's an explanation. Verses 2, 3, and 4, especially verses 2 and 3, are an explanation of who Jesus is in short form. Let's look at verse 2. He is the Son whom He appointed the heir of all things. So think about that. The, the, the point here is that the writer is saying that God the Father has appointed the Son the heir. He's the culmination of everything. Everything is from him and for him. He's the center of the universe. The glory of Jesus is the primary aim of redemption. We don't exist for God to serve us, but everything exists 
for him and his glory. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be all glory forever. He's the heir. He's the one that will inherit everything that God has done through him. In the verse next, the next clause in that sentence, through whom he also created the world. So here you have this mysterious. We get a kind of glimpse. We're like pulling back the curtain a little bit into the inner workings of the triune God in the creation of everything. So it's not like God had a beginning. He, he created everything out of nothing. God has always existed. And there are some difficult theological truths in the Bible, but I would submit to you one of the most perplexing and difficult to wrap our finite minds around is the fact that God has no beginning and has no end. How do you fathom such things? It's inscrutable. And here we see a kind of peek behind the curtains when God, this Latin phrase is ex nihilo, meaning out of nothing, when God, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit decided out of their glory to create, we see here this phrase that tells us that the Son, who is eternal with the Father and the Spirit, is the co-creator of everything that exists. That's Jesus. That's who Jesus is. He's the creator with God. He's not only the Son, He's not only the Savior, He's the sovereign Lord of all things. And that brings us to verse 3. Now verse 3. Now, now verse, verse 3, if you will meditate, if, if you're going to give yourself to, 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 to meditating on a verse in the Bible or in Hebrews, verse 3 might be, it should be, I think, at the very top of your list. I cannot, I know preachers sometimes exaggerate. I am not immune to that. that but verse 3 is as glorious as it gets, this side of heaven. This is what the writer says about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Okay, we need to take that phrase by phrase here quickly. He is the, what does the beginning of that verse mean? He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's two ways of saying that to see the Son is to see the Father. This is telling us that Jesus is fully divine. There's no less godness in the son he is just as glorious he shares his glory with the father and this is the greatest mystery of all how god could be three in one one god father son and holy spirit one god three persons and here because these people these early listeners to hebrews and those of us who've read the bible we can picture jesus in his earthly ministry and it can be difficult for us to see this human and understand how he is fully divine. And that's the burden of verse 3 to show us that this man who that they know, who they've heard about, who maybe some of them have even heard speak in person and who now we read about as a real man, that we know that he's not just truly man, but he is truly God. He's the radiance. He's the reflection. He's the shining forth of God himself. And he's the exact imprint. So to see Jesus is to see God. 
That's what the first part of verse 3 means. Jesus is fully God. The Son is fully God. And then it says that he upholds, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, I know I just lifted my hands up, but I actually don't want you to think of that as, don't think of it so much as like that picture of Atlas holding up the world, but think of it more like Jesus is in everything. He, he is the personal, preserving, all-powerful creator. Maybe a better word than uphold would be that he sustains, and maybe the translation you have, he sustains the universe by the word of his power. So that reflects us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, where it says that God spoke and creation happened, and there's this continual preservation of everything that is through the word of Jesus. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying, is that Jesus, by the word of his power, is actually holding everything together, even the cells in your body right now. That there's not this God who is our creator, there's like a distant watchmaker who winds up the clock, and then he removes himself to just kind of let creation go. But he winds it up, he creates it, he makes every gear, and he's actually the essence, the life, the power that is actually making it go on a second-by-second basis. That's how intimate this creator, Christ, is with his creation. Sometimes we talk about the laws of nature like gravity or, or some other law of nature. That's the only law of nature I can think about right now. I'm sure there are others. <laughs> anyway, whatever. Laws. Of <laughs> anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Law. Inertia? Is that another one? Okay, whatever. I'll stop now. But think about that. That's not some impersonal thing that Jesus, God has arranged that just kind of works. But according to Hebrews chapter 3, he's sustaining it. He's so intimately involved with his creation that he's, he's there, he's making it go moment by moment by the word of his power. And then, and then, and then, the writer takes it from the glorious throne room of heaven down into the depths of our sin and he says this about this creator who is making, sustaining, upholding everything together. And then this is the most un, this is the most stunning of developments. You talk about a hard turn from the glories of creator, sustainer, to the one who comes down and becomes like his creation, becomes one of them to actually make purification for sins. The spiritual distance between the first part of verse 3, and after making purifications for sins, is immeasurable. The heights of the creating, sustaining, all-powerful God, down into the humility of the one who would make purification for the sins of the people that he created, that he's sustaining, is immeasurable and inscrutable. I want you to see the the gap of glory between the first part of three and the second part of three. He's the creator who becomes one of the creation to make purification for the sins. Embedded in that phrase, making purifications for sin, is the whole of the gospel itself. Why did Christ need to make purification for sins? Well, let's back up. 
He's the creator. God has created a world, and he's created mankind. He's created all of us to reflect his image, to bear his image, to obey him. But we disobeyed him. We rebelled, and we were cut off from him. Sin has caused death to come in. Now, that's even a mystery, isn't it? Because it's not like God didn't know what was going to happen. So even in the fall, even in sin, God has glorious intentions and purposes. Nothing sneaks up on God. He is the lamb, the son is the lamb, slain before the foundations of the earth. And so the one that has created everything has become, has created, now the creation has fallen. How will this fallen creation be reconciled to a holy creator? Because the God that has created everything is holy and good and just. And man as the creature cannot reconcile himself. So there's this dilemma in the Bible. How will the creature be reconciled to the creator? And the only way is not for the creature to make himself right, but for the creator to become one of the creatures and to take the place, to bear the burden, to satisfy his own holiness for his people so that we could be reconciled to him. Friends, this... Everything in the Bible is in that phrase. This is the gospel. God has created everything. He allowed it to fall. He intended in some wise, glorious way to create a creation that he would allow to plunge into sin so that he would bring glory to himself by sending his son, who is God in the flesh, to actually live a perfect life where all of us have disobeyed God, where all of us deserve death, where none of us could enter the Holy of Holies, where none of us could be reconciled to God. But Jesus goes before us. He lives a perfect life. He does what we cannot do. And he offers up himself as a sacrifice sacrifice on the cross he he takes away the sin he takes away the guilt he takes away the condemnation and he restores purity so not only does he take away the wrath of god he restores righteousness and he doesn't only forgive sin he makes his people pure that's what he does and the writer of hebrews i mean we're in verse three what a way to start after making purification sins and this is going to be picked up because he's going to want to say hey he's going to say hey you jewish christians i know your temptation you want to go back in time and you want to make yourself religiously feel better by sacrificing a lamb or a goat or giving an offering and you've got this even though you're christians you've got this religious instinct in you where you still want to justify yourself and so you're going to be tempted to go back in time and offer a human sacrifice an animal sacrifice for your sin something that you do for your sin but there's something better here jesus he's not the blood of bulls and goats but once for all he's sacrificed himself and now sin is removed sin is sin is gone he is once and for all offered up himself so he's telling them he's 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 pointing them to one of the major points of hebrews is don't go back in time don't go back to justification by your own works stay with jesus he's the only one that can make you right and then he says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty and by the way before i move friends what i just went through that's the gospel you may be thinking, oh my gosh, I got invited by a friend. This guy's intense. I like, I like the music. The dude with the accent was cool. <laughs> I signed up for the dinner. This guy. <laughs> and some of it might have been over your head. I get all that. I get all that. 
uh, don't be duped by watered-down uh, presentation. Let me just think about it for a second, really. Like, you are an incredibly divine creature. God has given you capacities to know and to understand. He's made you in his image, even if you're still in sin, even if you're not born again yet, even you, are, you have incredible capacity. And don't, 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 don't buy into this dumbed-down American sort of lowest common denominator where everything has to be so understandable. I mean, come on. I mean, I want to be as understandable as I can, but if, well, my point I'm trying to make here is if you're like, oh my gosh, this is a little, i got to stretch to kind of think about this. This is sort of deep. That's good for you. You need depth. You need to be stretched. You don't just need little patty cakes. You, we need, come on. So, so, so rejoice in the fact that this might be just a touch above your head because on some level, it's above all of our heads. That's because God is God and we're the creature. The gap between his glory and us is so immeasurable and we need not to reduce everything down to just some little patty cakes on life lessons, but we need to get closer to the beautiful, incomprehensible God. So my point in saying all that is if you're a little stretched right now, that's good. And here's what I want to say is that what I've just said is the simple gospel that God is holy, you're a sinner, and the only way that you can be reconciled to him is through his son who has come to live and die for you if you will trust in him. You need to know that. And that's the message of Hebrews. And you can know that. And you can believe that. And you can hear that. And you can understand that. Don't buy into the lie that that's above your head. It's not. It's right there for you. It's right there for you. Will you see that? Will you trust in that? Will you believe that? That God is holy. You're not. Who will make up the gap? Christ who's purified the sins for the sins of all those that will trust in him. If you have that, you have all that there is to have. Back to the text. It says that he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So here's the son. I mean, come on. Think about all that this text is saying about Jesus. He's the creator. He's the, he's the sacrifice for sins. He's the savior. And now he's at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is there with the father, this triune heavenly court. And what's the imagery of him being sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high? It's a place where the king sits, where the prince sits. He is sovereign with his father. He's in control of everything. And the fact that he's seated is significant because unlike the earthly priests who had to go again and again into the temple on their feet or into the tent to offer sacrifices, he is seated. He has no more work to do when it comes to redemption. It's done. It's over. You, he, it is finished. And he's at the right hand of God because he is, and this is unbelievably encouraging and glorious. He is our advocate. So not only has he created us, and not only has he come to save us, but he he is at the right hand of the Father. And Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says that he always lives to make intercession for us. So the Son that's the Creator, the Son that's the Savior, is the priest at the right hand of God saying, no, no, he's mine, he's mine, she's mine. That one right there, they're mine. They're mine, let's remember what I've done for them. He daily lives to make intercession for his people. 
That's why Paul can write something so glorious in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not graciously give us all things? It is God who, it is God who justifies. Christ is at the right hand of God interceding for us. And then he says in verse 4, here's the summary phrase about Jesus. He's become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Okay, now, we'll get into this next week. But for the rest of chapter 1, verses 5 through 12, I think it is, he's going to start comparing Jesus to angels. And you might be thinking, well, that's kind of weird. Well, what's going on with angels? I, you know, I mean, angels are kind of this sort of um, mysterious figures in the Bible, and I've got an interest in them, but, you know, are we going to get into angelology? Are we going to talk about, well, that would be a good thing to do. I think that's a, a worthy topic for us to study. But I don't think actually that's the point of what the author is saying here. He's, he's wanting to contrast, because here's the point. For a first century Jewish reader, they would have thought of angels not uh, like we think of them necessarily in the 21st century, like characters in TV shows that come and help us get out of jams. Although they are ministering spirits, I, I, think, I think there's a case we can make that that's actually part of the ministry of angels. Are we, we can go on that route someday, maybe. But angels in the Old Testament are mediators of the law, they're mediators. The prophets would, 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 would interface with angels often. And so when he brings up this idea of angels, really it's, it's representative of the mouthpiece of the way God spoke in the Old Covenant. And the point that the author of Hebrews is making is that Jesus is a better representation. He is a superior communication of who God is. He's a superior word to the word of the angels, which is the word of Moses, the word of the law, the word of the sacrifices, the word of the Old Covenant. He is better than the Old Covenant. That's the primary point of this letter, that Jesus is better than the angels who mediated the law through Moses, who mediated the sacrifice, who mediated the priesthood. He's better than anything you want to flee Christ to go back to. He's better. Which then brings us to the third and final end with this quickly. I think this is the theme that we'll hit again and again. See, the theology of Hebrews is that Christ is supreme and that he's done all these things, that he has taken away the sin of his people through the sacrifice of his self in the Holy of Holies before God. But then the pastoral point, the application of the sermon is, truth number three, now, brothers and sisters, don't fall away, but hold fast and draw near to the Son. Don't just have theology in your head, but let it work itself out in your heart. The theology of Hebrews is not the end goal. It's meant to take us somewhere. And that place it is meant to take us is to, to Christ, who is the one who's died for our sin. But he, he doesn't just forgive sin. He chastens us. He calls us to obedience. We'll, we'll get to Hebrews chapter 11 or 12 or 13 or somewhere in there where it says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And it, we'll get to chapter 12 where it says that don't discipline, don't despise the discipline of the Lord. He's treating you as a son. Hebrews is not just a message of grace for the weary sinner, but it's a message of, of, of strength and, and a call to holiness. And it's to say, don't go back. Don't try and correct yourself and start your Christian life with this kind of burst of energy and then eventually fade away. Hang in there. Life gets tough. 
It's hard persevering, but this is a word to exhort us to persevere. And I see this pastorally again and again. People will come out of the gates like gangbusters, and they'll just they'll want this, and then, yeah, 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 and then, and then life gets a little hard or whatever, or, or just the world gets a little more attractive, and the person who just seems so on fire for the Lord, you look up months, years later, and they've just kind of drifted away, and there is no spiritual vigor, there's no spiritual life in them, and they're basically entangled in the very same things that brought them to a place of humility that caused them to cry out to Christ in the first time, first place. And what a tragedy that is. And friends, maybe you're there. Don't let Hebrews be this cool sermon series that this church that's interested in theology goes through so that we can kind of feel good about ourselves because we are into deep stuff. If that's the goal, then let's, let's, can't, let's stop it right now. Let's repent of our spiritual pride and let's go home and watch the Chargers lose a 27-point lead again. But if the goal is to see who Christ is so, so that I wouldn't be tempted to go back to sin, so that I would have steel in my spine as I live in a culture that increasingly hates him. So that I would be able to take my daily gospel pill to help with my case of amnesia because I'm so prone to forget what Christ has done for me. And that I need to hold fast to him. I need to be warned and exhorted and rebuked. I need the theology of Hebrews to not sit on the shelf. I need it to work its way down into my heart because I need it. I need it. I need it to fight sin. I need it to make it all the way home. I, I need it, and, and you need it too. If that's what Hebrews will be to us, and friends, let's lean forward and let's go and let's help each other fight because we need to hold fast. And we don't need Jesus to be a theory, a theology, a doctrine. We need him to be the son whom we can draw near to who is our brother. So let's, let's do that. Lord, help us with this. Lord, if there's been somebody in this room who realizes by your kindness that they do not know Jesus, they're in a wonderful place. And you're making them aware of that. Lord, would you, would you help them? Lord, would that person not leave this building today without having a conversation with somebody that they know to be a Christian about what they must do to trust in Christ. Or would you do that? Would you help us as we start this study? Would this be, would this be, would this, would this sermon series be a sweet balm to our souls and, a, and steel in our spines and Christ become sweeter? Would sin become more bitter? And would it help us endure to hold fast and draw near to the supreme son who is better than anything we've come from? 
In Jesus' name.